0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. This is the second part of the Decalogue. And when I say Decalogue, I hope you understand what I mean. That means the Ten Commandments. The second part of the Ten Commandments is based on this principle, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And yet this is the first time that we see in the Ten Commandments that the word neighbor is used. The Jews in Jesus' time thought that keeping the commandments was a way that they could have eternal life. And since the key to the commandments... uh, in the second part of the commandments, is this thought that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. The Jews would naturally wonder, what does it mean, or who is my neighbor? If you're going to be saved by keeping the law, this is something paramount that you would want to find out. Who, in fact, is my neighbor, if that's the way that I'm going to be saved? Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 began with a discussion of the two great commandments. There was a self-righteous... Pharisee, who came to Jesus and asked him, What is necessary for me to have eternal life? And Jesus answered him, What does the law say? And the man answered correctly. He said, The law says this, that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. And it says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Now go and do what the law says. This man thought that he was just. He thought that he was keeping the law as he should. But he did ask this critical question at the end of that. He said, and who is my neighbor? He needs to know that if he thinks he's going to be saved by keeping the law. And who is my neighbor? And it was very easy for Jesus to expose this man and show that he didn't really understand how to be saved because the Jews did this. They always had a high regard for the Jewish estate, But they cared nothing at all about anybody else that was around them. Now the intent of the second half of the commandments is to rid us of this thought. There is nobody in the world but me. Or as Americans, there is nobody in the world but us. The Apostle Paul said, All seek their own things, not the things of Christ. And that was his commentary on our new life in Christ, which he tied to the second part of the law, How are we to relate to the world that is around us? How are we to show, to demonstrate the love of Christ? And this is the answer. We do it by the way that we treat our fellow man. And so it was a breakdown of this principle that we should care for our neighbor that actually led to one of the first lies that you see in the scripture. Cain was asked about his brother Abel after he killed him. God said, where is your brother? And Cain replied, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You read the fourth chapter of Genesis, and very close to the very beginning of the Bible, you see how sin compounds. And first of all, you see disobedience and the sacrifice. Cain brought the wrong kind of a sacrifice. The next thing that happened was murder. The next thing was a lie in the cover-up of that murder. And in the end, what you have is the callous disregard for the welfare of others when Cain said, Is it my responsibility to see if Abel is okay? So Genesis chapter 4, within one generation of the fall, is the complete destruction of this second part of the law. The development of sin... And the first four chapters of Genesis is the divine testimony to our depraved human nature. That we are sinners, always and continually. We have no desire to stop sinning. We are sinners. Genesis 6 says it well. By that time it says, it was only evil in the heart of men. It was only evil they wanted to do continually. So the truth of man's sin nature, those of you that have attended other churches and listened to other preaching. The the intent or or, or the, the activity of the pulpit is not to tell people about this sin nature, that we are sinners. Instead, the favorite thing to do in every church, almost everywhere you go, is to applaud ourselves. Pat ourselves on the back, tell each other that we are fine people. And that makes me look like a bad guy. Because when I preach, I want to tell you what the Bible has to say about us. And there are people that would say, well, Pastor Smith, what you preach is hate speech. And they don't like what I have to say because I relentlessly do this. I hope you recognize it. We relentlessly try to call people to repentance from their sins, and yet people consider us to be their enemies because we're telling them the truth. The Bible says that's one of the problems that true preaching has. People don't like it, and they'll call you their enemy when you're trying to do the very best you can to help them. And so preachers that bring before you the Word of God and teach it in the way that we tried to do it here bring you face-to-face with God's truth. This ninth commandment is about truth. And you say, well, no, no, this commandment is about lying. And if you say it's about lying, then you actually have missed the main point. And the main point is that God is absolute truth. And He commands us not to lie because the commandments are a reflection of His character. And so it's not enough to say that God doesn't lie. We have to preach more than that. We have to show that God is proactive in promoting the truth. The seventh commandment, which is also a reflection of God's character, says, "...thou shalt not commit adultery." Now, can you imagine that I need to argue with you that God does not commit adultery... If you think that's the main point of the command, then you missed it as well, because the main point of that command is to teach us that God is a God of fidelity, that God is a God of faithfulness, that God is a covenant-keeping God. We want to show the character of God. Now, in the last message, this was our beginning point. This was a couple of weeks ago. And it was about the testimony of truth, that God is abundant in goodness and in truth. It says that in Exodus chapter 34. He is the God of truth in Isaiah 65. His words are true in 2 Samuel 7 verse 28. And then when we come to the New Testament, we see that truth is personified in Jesus Christ. In John 1 14, it says He is full of grace and truth. In the 17th verse, it says that He is... That truth came by Jesus Christ. And then you have Jesus' own testimony of himself in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this is a commandment that not only forbids the negative, thou shalt not lie, but it accentuates the positive character of God that we are to tell the truth. Always be honest. Always be truthful. Nothing reflects the character of God like truth. As one author said, we are most like God when we tell the truth. We are most unlike God when we lie. And those two extremes are separated by an impassable gulf. God is truth. Jesus said, no lie. Or John said, rather, no lie is of the truth. And so, therefore, to be like God, we cannot lie. That's a tall order, isn't it? Try to apply that to your life. Never lie. Not once. Not once, don't tell any kind of a lie. There is no deceit in God, and so there should be no deceit in God's people. Now, I'd like to continue our discussion from two weeks ago. Uh, Our first observation on this ninth commandment was to talk about the public intention for Israel. I preach the commandments for this reason. The commandments apply to your life in this year of 2017. The New Testament... Tells us that we are to look to the Old Testament for our examples. The commandments are given to live by; they have their spiritual applications to be used in our time, but we also ought not to re- disregard. We ought not, we ought not to disregard what these commandments meant at the time that they were given. What we have before us in the Ten Commandments is the Constitution. It's a Constitution of Israel's government. Now, as we think of our Constitution of the United States, we think of it as a declaration of law for our government. These are the laws that we live by. And so Israel, when they were given the commandments at Sinai, this is their Constitution. These are the laws that they are to live by. And every commandment here is a stipulation of law. And therefore, this ninth commandment appears to us as it would... In a court of law, it relates to the court of law. Thou shalt not bear witness, told them that in the court of law, they couldn't take the witness stand to speak any false testimony. They must always speak the truth. And if they didn't speak the truth, then they disrespected the rule of God's government. It's impossible for the government to give equal protection under the law when lies are told in the courtroom. Now, you remember when we discussed this, how Israel didn't have the benefit of discovering truth in the ways that we do. Today, we have crime labs, we have forensic analysis, we have all these kinds of things, the CSI and things that you see on television, all kinds of ways to discover the truth, with the DNA evidence and all of those things. Israel has none of that. No, no they, can't, they can't do anything like that to try and discover a crime. The only thing that they have is the circumstantial evidence, it looks like this person probably did it, and then secondly, the eyewitness testimony. And so the eyewitness testimony is absolutely critical, critical for the right adjudication of the law, the good exercise of justice. And so eyewitness was so serious that if it was found out that you lied in the court of law, then the thing that you lied about the penalty for that crime that you lied about would be yours so if you lied about somebody in a capital case and you said this person murdered so and so and they didn't do it and it's found out then you will be put to death and other things you lie in the court of law then that penalty is going to be yours you have to own the penalty Ligon Duncan identified four terrible effects that lying in court had on Israel. First of all, he said that lying injures the accused. Now, in the broader context of that, what well, we really do need to see that the second half of the commandment is all about injuring our fellow man. And so we ought not to injure our fellow man in any way. Secondly, he says, it hindered the administration of justice. If the accused is lied against and he is convicted. What does that mean? Well, it means there's somebody out there who committed a crime who hasn't been brought to justice. And when that happens, criminals often commit the same crimes again. And so justice isn't served. Thirdly, he said it undermines confidence in the judicial system. Recently, there was a a television show that revisited the O.J. Simpson trial That was called the trial of the century. You remember that? And who can forget these these words, if you're as old as I am at least, who can forget when Johnny Cochran stood in the courtroom and he said, if the glove does not fit, you must acquit. And that whole saying right there was meant to manipulate the jury. And so, so through the manipulation of the jury and such things as that, they made a mockery of the judicial system. Fourthly, when people... Do not believe they've been treated fairly and equally at trial. It troubles all of society. It breeds cynicism. It breeds distrust of your neighbor. It gives hope to a murderer and to a thief and gives no hope at all to the innocent. Now, what I'd like to do today in the message first is to just take a closer look at this, that what is expected in the court of law? And this is kind of an unusual sermon uh, for me to talk to you about what's done in our judicial system, what should be done. But we do need to talk about this for just a few minutes. We're studying the commandment, and it's phrased or it's put into the context of the court of law. So what should be expected in the courts of law? Now, I've given you scriptures that deal with God's character. We want to talk about maintaining the integrity of the courtroom according to God's character. And so first of all, we saw this as we discussed it the last time, is that God is the creator of justice. But first of all, this is a commandment about Him. It's a commandment about His truthfulness. I said that at the beginning of this message. The Scriptures speak of God's truthfulness. We need to know, Israel needed to know, God never lies. Truth is the expectation of its government. Secondly, we did say that it's for the Court of Justice, and that's where I left off last time, speaking of the Court of Justice. So so now, we're just going to take a few minutes to look into the courtroom and see the honesty that is required in the judicial process. So what are these moving parts of the courtroom? First of all, obviously, there's a judge. There's a judge in the courtroom. That judge must be an honest judge. I think all of us would say that the judge is the key figure when you enter into the courtroom. That's not difficult for us. It's not difficult for us to understand even who that judge represents. Now, as Christians, we should understand this, that the earthly kingdom in which we live is a parallel to the heavenly kingdom in which God is the judge. And so that's a sobering thought for any judge in our courtroom to understand that he represents God. A judge on any level represents God. Now, if you'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1, in this chapter, Moses gave instructions for those who were chosen to be judges to administer justice. And in the 16th and 17th verses of Deuteronomy chapter 1, he talks about those that that he had chosen to help him in this process of administering justice for Israel. He says this in verse number 16 of Deuteronomy 1. And I charge your judges at that time, saying, Hear the causes between your brethren, and judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. Ye shall not respect persons in judgment, but ye shall hear the small as well as the great. Ye shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. And the cause that is too hard for you, bring it to me, and I will hear it. They were to judge... Righteously, So what they couldn't do was to let their own personal feelings interfere in their judgments. They were to judge a poor man's case in the same way that they judged a rich man without respect for persons. They weren't to be afraid to judge the powerful if they needed to. And why were they to do it that way? Verse 17 tells us why. It says, the judgment is God's. So Moses told these people that were appointed as judges, you stand in the place of God. Now, we have to ask ourselves, are we confident that our judges are honest and they will judge as God judge judges? Now, one of the reasons that, and this is before our minds right now because of what's happened recently, but one of the reasons that a Supreme Court judge in our country is chosen for life is so that he won't be beholden to political processes. In other words, he can't be influenced by political parties that could have him removed if he doesn't judge the way they want him to judge. So he must be able to judge the powerful, even those people in government that appoint him. He has to be able to judge them without the fear of reprisal. Now, whether we agree with it or not, the judge, our Supreme Court judges especially, rule according to their conviction of the Constitution. And if that judge believes that the Constitution should be interpreted strictly and by original intent, as the one that was just appointed, uh, believes, or whether that judge believes that it should be elastic, that it should change with the times, you may not like what I'm about to say, but that's not a biblical issue. That's not an issue to be taken up by the church to insist that there must be a certain method of interpretation of the congregation. That's not the church's job to decide that. You can decide what you feel about that. That's not the church's job to decide it. The thing that we should be concerned with is do we appoint moral judges? I don't have a satisfactory answer for that in a country where there are 350 million people of different religions, different opinions, I don't know how we're going to do that, but I do know this, as faithful Christians, we should insist that the judges that are chosen hold our moral convictions. So, people say, is it right to make the right to life a litmus test for a judge? Absolutely. Because the Bible says that we are to value the welfare of our neighbor. The pro-abortion activists would say, well then, who is my neighbor? And I'll tell you what the Bible would tell you. The little baby in the womb is your neighbor. You owe him protection. Now we can see the travesty of wicked judges by looking at the Bible's most startling example. This would be the Sanhedrin that was the highest Jewish court at the time of Jesus, and it manipulated the outcome of his trial. There was a high priest in that trial who, we might say, equates to the chief justice, and he's the one who conducted the proceedings, and he violated the established Jewish law at every turn. The verdict was already determined before Jesus ever went into the courtroom, and the result of that verdict was Jesus' death. And do you remember that Peter said in Acts, he said, You... To the religious leaders and to the people, he said, You are guilty of crucifying the Son of God. You are guilty of crucifying Jesus Christ unjustly. And you know what happened to them? In 70 A.D., just a few years later, God destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and that was God, that was God imposing Exactly what he'd said in the law, if you lie, then the same penalty will be imposed upon you. And so God destroyed their entire city and their temple, their whole worship system, because they lied and crucified Jesus. Now the point that I'd like to make then is that from the smallest court to the greatest The integrity of the judge is paramount. He represents God. And whether or not he believes that he stands for God, he still has this responsibility. When he puts on those robes, he is to judge righteously. And unfortunately, the hearts of many of our judges are as black as the robes that they put on. Secondly, is the court recorder. You know, I wondered, what would we say... About that person, we're just talking about components in the courtroom. What do we say about that person who has the responsibility just to sit there and to take down the proceedings? This is what happened. This is what happened. This is what he said. This is what he said. And they got a transcript and everything of this court. And this person records the proceedings. And I think, well, what are we going to say about that? And is there anything important in that? Well, maybe there wasn't until I found out this very interesting fact. Uh, First of all, that when a court recorder lies, the incorrect information is put into the record. Now, in our country, the verdicts, verdicts in some cases, are often determined by precedent. What happened another time? A similar case like this came up, and they looked to a precedent. So if you put the wrong thing into into the record, then the subsequent judgments based upon that record are also going to be wrong. Does it make sense? I hope so. We think, well, well, how is that important about what we're talking Well, I found this very interesting thing happened in the Bible that um, after the Jews returned from their captivity, uh, you're familiar with the story of how they wanted to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But before they could do it, there was, there was a record that was raised that had been falsified many years before that. And so when they began to rebuild the the city walls, there was opposition to them. And and the people went to the records, to the court records, to try to stop the building of it. And so the king was made aware of this record. And it was a false record. And it said the king should stop them because of what they were doing. So this is what we read in Ezra chapter 4. And I commanded, this is the king speaking, I commanded, and search hath been made, or he searched the records, And it hath been found that this city of old time hath made insurrection against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made therein. They have been mighty kings also of Jerusalem, which have ruled over all countries beyond the river. Toll and tribute and custom was paid unto them. Give ye now commandment to cause these men to cease, and that this city be not builded until another commandment be given from me. That's The false record, and based upon that false record, they stopped them from rebuilding the city walls. Later, that false record was expunged. There was another king that came. This was King Darius. He came into power, and he found the original decree of Cyrus that said that the Jews had permission to build, not only to build, but to build in all good haste. Get this thing done as quickly as you can. And so the building of the temple... And the resumption of sacrifices, the rebuilding of the holy city of God was dependent upon a court record. Did they get the court record right? And until they got it right, the walls couldn't be built. Thirdly, honesty is required of the plaintiff. That's the accuser. He can't be a false witness. The plaintiff is the one who initiates the action. He can't give a false testimony. If he does, then a wrongful suit is the occupation of the court. And it doesn't matter what else is honest. If you're in the court for the wrong reason, then nothing is going to be right. So the plaintiff can't lie. And let me stop here for just a moment. Have you heard the term prevaricator? Everybody know that term, prevaricator? What does it mean? A liar. A prevaricator is a liar, right? A liar. The word's a very interesting word. It's a metaphor For someone whose knees are out of joint, we call it knock-kneed. A person with knock knees will stand with his legs straight, but his knees are together like this, and his feet go out at the bottom. So he's knock-kneed. Now in the Bible times, in in ancient times, they wore robes. So a person who was knock-kneed, you couldn't tell, because their feet at the bottom are just straight, standing like, like you should be. And then when you take the robe off, then it's uncovered that the person is knock-kneed, and that was called a prevaricator. I don't know why you needed to know that, but now you know it. So if anybody ever asked you where that came from. Fourthly, now we talked about the plaintiff, fourthly there's the defendant. The defendant might also be a false witness. The defendant needs truth on his side. And hopefully that truth is favorable to him. And so if the truth is not favorable to the defendant, what does he do? He starts to make excuses. There has to be some reason. Adam was a defendant in God's court. And God came to Adam and He said, Did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And what did Adam say? It's not me, it's that wife you gave me. And not only is that wife you gave me, He emphasized You gave it her. You gave her to me. In other words, what he did, he threw his wife under the bus and accused God of driving the bus. So Adam says, "No, it's not. It's not me." He started making excuses, and we learned that behavior from Adam. We make excuses for what we do wrong rather than admitting it. A defendant is not required to testify against himself. That was in Jewish law. Um, That protected him from self-incrimination. We see that preserved in our own country in the Fifth Amendment. You don't have to incriminate yourself. When Jesus was brought to trial, this is one of the tactics they tried to use against him. They tried to get him to testify against himself. And when he wouldn't do it, the high priest became very angry. And that's when they started to look for false witnesses to testify against Jesus. And he was convicted based on false testimony. The honesty of a guilty defendant, someone truly guilty in the court, is very rarely seen. I'm talking about someone who knows that they're guilty. They know they committed the crime. They go to court accused of the crime, a crime they know they have committed, and what do they plead? Not guilty. The the lawyer tells him, "Plead not guilty." Now we expect that from somebody that's not a Christian, but I'll just tell you right now, what should a Christian do when he gets in court? If you're guilty, what do you do? I'm guilty. Well, I tell you, you know the reason that I don't go to court for my speeding tickets? I'm guilty. There's no point. They might as well just pay it and forget it. I'm guilty. So, a Christian should never try to pretend that he's not guilty when he's guilty. There was a... This has happened recently, back in December. There was a prominent Christian pastor and an educator who was arrested in Indiana for driving under the influence The arresting officer observed him driving erratically, crossing the center line, hitting the curb, driving on the interstate at 30 miles an hour with a flat tire for two miles. When the officer got him out of the car, he couldn't stand up, his speech was slurred, his blood alcohol test was two times the legal limit. In addition, he had two of his underage Uh, minor children in the car with him and so he was charged with endangering the welfare of a minor. The charges accumulated to seven years in jail and $21,000 in fines. The preacher pleaded not guilty. Now in my opinion, a judge might perhaps show some leniency if he was disposed to, if that's a man's first defense. He doesn't have to, but he might. But if that person in the court pleads not guilty, and it's definite that he's guilty, and they know that he's guilty, give him seven years, give him 15 years. If he's a Christian, give him 25 years, because he shouldn't do it. Christians ought not to lie. So how terrible does it look to have a, a man in the courtroom who's supposed to be a Christian, a man who's a pastor, a man who was teaching at a seminary, to lie on the witness stand? What does that say about Christians? But that's the way things work doesn't it? That's the way it goes. Guilty defendants lie and they plead not guilty. Now finally in the courtroom there's the lawyer. Now we're stuck. Where are we going to find an honest lawyer? We've got a real problem here. Now lawyers have a really bad reputation because they're master manipulators of the law. A half-truth is a whole lie. I mean, a half truth's a whole lie, but they don't teach those things in law school. The lawyer's job is to win for his client, and so the truth is hidden or manipulated. And so many times it's not the truth that prevails, it is lawyers that prevail. Now lastly, I said last them, but this is actually last, and that's, that's the central part of the command. And when I say last here, we're not done yet, so just don't pack your stuff up yet. The central part of the command is the witness. The witness is the one who is told to treat his neighbor justly. He mustn't lie. He's not to steal justice from his neighbor. Now, you can think of this in two ways. He's not to lie for or against his neighbor. Either way, he perverts justice for the entire community. Loving your neighbor does not mean that you lie for him. But how many times have you heard this said, Cover for me. Just, just cover for me now. I'll owe you one later. Not for a relative. Not for anybody. And on the witness stand, wherever you are, it doesn't matter. You don't lie for people because that's an offense against God. So you can't do either. You can't lie to help. You can't lie to hurt. So the court has to maintain integrity in every part or it does damage to the entire society. And in a church context, the whole community of believers is harmed when people lie. So that's a look at the context for Israel. This is what... They saw what they heard where they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. They received the law from Moses, and this is their constitution of government. But as I said, the Old Testament is given for us to be an example in the present. So we as believers have something to learn from this too. Not just about courts of justice. There is an obligation to the public justice, but a believer has to go beyond the public meaning of this, and we've got to apply the principle of God's Word in our own lives. So the next thing that we need to look at, and we'll just get a start today, is the private application for Christians. The command reaches beyond the court system and goes down into our daily lives. And this is because honesty with our neighbor is another way that we show love for him. A few weeks ago, I was reading about problems with expository preaching one problem is preaching a sermon that applies to a different congregation i don't know if you understand what i mean by that but it's possible for a preacher to get up and preach a sermon that has absolutely nothing to do with the people that he's talking to well we don't want to be guilty of that we don't want to leave this subject and say well that's how israel dealt with things it's all about them now we have to see well what does it mean to us what does it mean to believers right now So we discuss the application for us. First is for the community of Christians. What does it mean to us as a community of Christians? Well, let's return to this principle of determining who is our neighbor. Paul said, everyone in the church is a member of Christ's body, of his flesh and of his bones. And so if we are all members of one body, we are all members of each other. Romans 12, verse 5, So ye being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Now, since we are part of each other, then a proper relationship between us is essential for the good health of the entire body of God's church. Now here, I can only speak to Christians because this is an issue of the heart. Lies come out of an evil heart, and unless we have a new heart, it's impossible for us to deal with this problem. And that's because people always prefer lies to the truth. And you may think, well, that's a lie. Everybody doesn't prefer lies to the truth. Well, you need to hear this whole series of messages because we find out that lying is a way of life. And this is why when I asked a moment ago, how many of you, how many of you um, realize this, that the Bible says don't lie in any case, and you kind of look at each other and say, whoa, w- wait a minute. How am I going to deal with that one? Well... Lying is a way of life. Liars cannot live and breathe without lying. And that's, many times, we just don't even know what to do with plain, brutal honesty. You lie because sometimes we think lying is preferable. So even Christians have the problem in some measure because that's a part of the sin nature. And until God comes and changes this sinful nature in the resurrection, like we talked last week, we're going to struggle with this. The problem will persist. We can't stop all lies And so God has given us the gift of repentance. And that's one of the wonderful benefits when we get to heaven. There's never a need of repentance again. There are no lies in heaven. Everybody's made perfect. We never need to repent because we're glorified, entirely sanctified. But until you get there, this is a struggle that you will always have. Now, the difficulty of stopping this lying tongue that we have is very well documented in the Scriptures. I can take you to Proverbs chapter 6 where it says that lying is one of the deadly sins. In the New Testament, James wrote about our tongue. He said in James 3, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God the Father and therewith curse we men which are made in the similitude of God. That's a mighty low opinion of our tongue. Very low. Because it has such ability to facilitate evil. No person can tame evil the tongue, and that's the difficulty that we have with lying. And yet, despite that difficulty, the Bible still tells us that we are to control the tongue. Jesus said in Matthew 12, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. So now we get outside of man's courtroom And we go into the spiritual court where the ninth commandment governs everything that we say everywhere that we are. Any word that's said with the purpose to deceive is a lie. Some people sometimes may not intend to lie, but it's still false. And so we very have to, we have to stop and very carefully consider every word that we speak because it says every word that you speak, even the idle words that you speak, you're going to be judged by them. By those words you will be justified or condemned. Arthur Pink gave a good definition of lying. A lie, properly speaking, consists of three elements or ingredients, speaking what is not true, deliberately doing so, and doing so with an intent to deceive. Every falsehood is not a lie. We may be misinformed or deceived and sincerely think we're studying the facts and consequently have no design on imposing on others. On the other hand, we may speak that which is true and yet lie in so doing, and when we report what is true and yet believe it to be false and alter it with intention to deceive. And let me stop right there. That's complicated and confusing. Most, if not all of you, know when you're lying. And when you're found found out to be lying, others don't need to be handed the book of theology to define it as a lie. You know it's a lie when you tell it. And you can parse words all that you want, and you can say, well, tell me what the meaning of is is, and it's still a lie. So let's just cut to the chase of this quote. Pink went on to say, The worst form of lying between men is when we maliciously invent a falsehood for the purpose of damaging the reputation of our neighbor, which is what is more especially in view in terms of the Ninth Commandment. To that we agree. Absolutely. It's despicable. That is a despicable kind of lying, and it's the type of lying that makes us most like Satan. It is Satan's intent to destroy, and he gains nothing from it but the pleasure of evil. And when people lie, the malicious lies, and they join in league with Satan, it's not because there's some love that qualifies them for his help or anything else. It's all folly. To be in league with Satan is never an advantage. So hopefully, nobody in here would ever touch a lie of that kind. You're you're never going to lie maliciously, hurt a person by telling lies that, that harm them in that way. And so that just can't be the life of a Christian. Especially telling lies that damages people that are in the community of the believers. Like right in this church. That can't be what Christians do. And in my time... As a, as a Christian and as a pastor, which encompasses many, many years, rarely have I seen this kind of activity in church members. We just don't really see the malicious lie. And when we do, on the rare occasion that we do, that person has proved not to be a Christian at all. And so on the basis of that argument, we look at ourselves and we think, well, we're mostly good to go because we don't tell malicious lies. That, that doesn't happen in the church very often. And so, are we okay? We don't tell the malicious lie? I say no. And the Bible says no, because God expects perfect truth. There is no such thing as a lesser version of God that permits the little white lies, the little things that you do every single day. God does not permit a falsehood of any kind. Many times in the epistles, the Apostle Paul talks about the perfect man. You know what that means? That means the man or the person, the woman, the man who has come into complete conformity with God who, who is in the fullness of the stature of Christ. Hebrews says that Christ was the perfect man who earned righteousness by an obedient life. Then it says in the end of the book, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's our goal, to be like Christ. We can't be when there's the least little bit of dishonesty in us. And since we're all sinners, or as Luther said, justified yet sinners, we must depend upon the perfect righteousness of Christ to stand good for us in this as it does in all other ways. And so our job is to work towards conformity to Christ by yielding to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So we have to check our sin. We have to rid ourselves of sin, including those things that seem impossible for us to do. Now, if you'll just turn to Ephesians chapter 4 as we finish, there's some important wisdom here that helps us to be more like Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, the Apostle Paul says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ for, or God, for Christ's sake, have forgiven you. So that's the answer to how we... Fulfill this command to love our neighbor. In the ninth commandment, have we done enough if we limit lying to just insignificant things and we get rid of raging malicious lies? That's what I'm going to take up in the next message. And we're going to examine many ways that we can lie. And what I'll try to show you is that we've got a long, 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 long way to go to be like Christ. So the best of us can't pat ourselves on the back. We're still miserable sinners. I said at the beginning, I often look like the bad guy because I have to tell you the truth of what we really are. And that person who's on the outside of the church who doesn't know what we teach in here, inevitably he's going to say, those people are going to church because they think they're better than us. They think they're better than us out here. And what am I telling you in here? No, no, no. We're not better. We're just people who've come inside the church to find out how bad we are and how we can work on it. How we can be more like Christ. How we can improve in our sanctification. We're not here to applaud each other. As Paul said, I've not already attained. Did you know the great apostle Paul said that? I've not yet already attained. He said, I I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So do you want a preacher who tells you everything's fine? That you have arrived? There's nothing left for you to do. Just think positively. Bless yourself. Pat yourself on the back with self-affirmations. Are we better off coming to church and hearing the preacher say, Show me, or you saying to the preacher, Show me the ways that I've sinned so I can be more like Jesus Christ? Remember, in the scriptures, truth is often synonymous with righteousness. The godly person speaks truth in his heart. The psalmist said, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, or taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. You see it? The neighbor, the neighbor, the neighbor. Speaking truth in his heart, and does no evil to his neighbor. The Ten Commandments are very, very modern, aren't they? Very, very modern. They're the rule of government, for now and for all time, for everybody who is a Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now confessing our sin. Lord, we know we can't stand here and talk about how good that we are. We are justified in the blood of Jesus Christ, and only because of his righteousness have we anything to claim. It's the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ upon us and His salvation that makes us what we are. Any goodness that is in us comes from Him, not from us. Lord, show us our sin. Show us how to be sanctified, to become holy, to be, to be like You in all areas of our life, in every word that we speak, in everything that we do. We desire to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as Your people to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. at www.bebaptist.org.